If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. You know, it's uh, certainly not usual when we talk to uh, Keith Mackey, Mackey International, uh, once a week, because normally these situations are very few and far between. Uh, thank goodness. Uh, but we've got a story here, of, and I've, I'm sure you've seen the footage, Alaska Airlines, Boeing 737 MAX 9, uh, a mid-air door blowout. To talk more about all of this, Keith Mackey is with us, Mackey International, here now. Keith, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, Scott. You are. Well, I assume. Yes, thank you so much. I've seen you all over uh, the media and such, trying to give explanations to what happened. Uh, How does this happen? Was this a door or a temporary door? How does this work? Well, it seems that it's a lot cheaper to put a door in an airplane at manufacturer than try to add one later. And different airlines configure their cabins differently. Some of them will have a galley in that area where the door blew out. Others will need it for an emergency exit if they increase the passenger capacity by putting smaller seats in the airplane, if you know what I mean. But at any rate, uh, the option for a door was offered by Boeing, and apparently Alaska accepted it, although they didn't need the door for their present configuration. So what Boeing did was they put a plug in it. It was just like a regular door that remained closed. Yeah. How it blew out is kind of a mystery because it's like a bank vault door. It, it, mm. The door itself is bigger than the opening, so it shouldn't be able to blow out. It's going to be really interesting how this problem is solved. I doubt that they were able to recover the door. I think it uh, disappeared from 16,000 feet. It could be anywhere. But finding that door is going to be critical to determining what exactly failed. So as this progresses, it's going to get very interesting. Now, we do know that it was a new... No, sorry. Go ahead, Keith. Go ahead. It was a new airplane. It was new in November, and I think it had 145 flights, which would mean it had 145 pressure cycles going up and down to to altitude. Now, it blew out at 16,000 feet, which is quite low. What would happen if it blown out at thirty nine or forty thousand feet? There would have been a, a much more serious situation with that big a hole in the fuselage. The cabin air would be exhausted almost instantaneously, and uh, everybody would be at that pressure altitude to have to get your oxygen masks on immediately. So this is a good example of why it's a good idea to keep your seatbelt fastened when you're seated. And wow. if those oxygen masks pop down, they're there for a reason. Grab them and use them. Um, you, you talked about this being a door that was optional and, and was not being used, so therefore plugged to make it, it make sure it's extra secure, I presume. How come this one would come loose and not one of the other ones then? Good question. Uh, well, the regular doors, of course, open every flight, and they're designed to have the top and the bottom fold in to relieve that plug, if you will that the door actually will pass through its frame and then turn on the outside of the aircraft. So that's quite a normal thing. But this door was designed never to be opened and just to plug the hole. We'll call it a door. It was really more of a plug, although Mm. it occupied the same space that a door would occupy. So, and, and we're hearing now that uh, there, there had been warning lights that have been had been coming on, and that this plane was restricted to certain flights, not long haul, something it could could get back from. Thoughts on that? 
I haven't heard that yet. I'm, I'm unfamiliar with it. I'm not sure what lice those would be. But uh, I seriously doubt that it had anything to do with pressurization because that's just a critical thing, and you don't uh, minimize that at all. I'm sorry. I'm just, yeah, I'm reading a speculation here that uh, if warning lights, uh, warning lights would have or did they indicate that there was a pressurization problem? Uh, No, I mean, the the pressurization was fine until the door panel left the airplane (laughs) and suddenly it wasn't so fine. But, you know, we're only at 16,000 feet. I mean, in Bolivia, people were born and bred at 13,000 feet. So uh, for someone used to living at sea level, it's quite a, a change, but it isn't life-threatening. And the crew did a great job. They got it down quickly. There's the problem. You're flying an airplane like this, and suddenly you lose pressurization. Well, the procedure calls for a very high-speed descent. But what if the airplane's compromised structurally? You yeah. certainly don't want to come down at high speed. You want to take it easy at a slower speed and try to get down as rapidly as you can by using your speed brakes and things like that, but uh, it becomes a, uh, a a judgment call, and I think the crew did great. Anything, uh, have you heard of anything like this happening before, where uh, an actual door or plug door, what have you, blows open? Well, I've never had one blow open, but I have had one uh, one time uh, that the portion of the door that can open didn't seal quite right and that uh, luckily it was a short flight we only went up to about 3,000 feet and it just kind of made a lot of noise and didn't hurt anything our next stop we closed it and nothing bad ever happened after that it was kind of an uneventful thing but uh, there again the door just wasn't quite rigged properly and needed to be adjusted uh, this uh, situation happened with uh, the new 737 uh, MAX 8s. We know the situation in the past that they have had. Uh, another concern about this airplane, are, w- what are your thoughts about the safety and such uh, of this craft? Well, this is actually a MAX 9, which is the larger version of the MAX 8 that has a higher passenger right. capacity. But I think uh, Boeing is going to have to do a lot of explaining. How could this happen? Uh, I can't imagine there would have been any maintenance procedure in that area, especially with such a new airplane that would cause it to be inspected. So I'd have to think that whatever happened was there when it left the factory. And then the other question is, why didn't it happen sooner? And why didn't it happen at a higher altitude where the uh, pressure differential between the inside of the airplane and the atmosphere outside is much greater? So what happens now, Keith, as a, as a uh, safety concern with these planes? How Now what happens? Well, the FAA issued an emergency, what we call airworthiness directive, and effectively grounded the entire fleet. And they've no doubt come up with an inspection procedure to make sure that everything was as it was designed to be. But we may not still know what caused the problem until we recover the uh, the missing piece, the missing plug, if you will. And that'll that'll give us a lot of clues. It's kind of, uh, in, in my opinion, not likely that we'll have a anything other than an ongoing periodic inspection until we really determine what happened. Keith Mackey with us, Mackey International, Alaska Airlines, Boeing 737 MAX 9, and a blowout of a door in flight. Keith, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. 
I'm not sure if it's any more this time of year or any time of the year. It seems that we're um, uh, getting new notifications or what have you in regard to uh, staying safe and, 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 and doing the right things to avoid being scammed and taking advantage of and, and so on and so forth. Just finished, obviously, the holiday season and lots of online transactions going on. And many people buy and sell a lot of stuff, whether it's stuff that they have or they've made a, a small little uh, side hustle out of this. And there's lots of transactions that go that go on all the time. But uh, as always, where there's opportunity, there are scams. And recently uh, in Ontario, there's been issues with Facebook Marketplace well, I, uh, in situations where people have wanted something, a product that's uh, being sold by somebody. And then for some reason, a deposit is asked for, and the rest is history, as they say. Let's bring in David Shipley, cybersecurity expert, CEO of Boceron Security, and here now. David, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too, David. Uh, so w- what are the basic do's and don'ts? First of all, let's talk about this case and what's going on. And Is this basically somebody asking for a deposit and then they're gone? So what happens is uh, people are lured with uh, the idea of getting deep discounts on high-priced items because somebody is moving. And so that creates this sense of urgency. And of course, everyone's looking for a deal these days. Who isn't? And imagine oh. that flat screen TV that you've always wanted, but it's it's now dirt cheap because this other poor fellow has to move. But of course, to secure that you get it, I need to make sure that it's real. So send me a deposit and, and, and I'll, I'll save the item for you. That way I don't miss out. And that's how the fraudsters get uh, their victims. And, you know, it's it's a very human thing. When we see an attractive deal emotionally, we get excited. We want to seize upon it. And they prey upon that. And they're making a lot of money. How do we know as consumers whether the TV is real or not? You don't. Um, and that's one of the dangers of using these marketplaces. And remember, Facebook owes you nothing. If you read your terms of service closely, and I know we've all taken the time to read it, you'll find that Facebook has indemnified themselves for all potential risk of running this marketplace. So they've shielded themselves uh, legally with their contract and their army of lawyers. So you're pretty much buyer beware, the old caveat emptor. Uh, pretty much a modern technological one ads. I mean, that's really what it is. N- nothing really new here. Just the technique is. So what can we learn and, and how do you do this right? Well, number one, if the deal seems too good to be true, it's not true. Um, You might have that odd story where someone got a really great find on Facebook Marketplace. But if we're talking high ticket items, things worth more than $2,000 start being very, very skeptical about deep discounts. And remember, Facebook doesn't cover you for vehicle purchases. Even if you do it through their checkout process and their purchase protection, they don't cover real estate, vehicles, precious metals, uh, gems, you name it. Read the fine print because you might think just because it's a big multi-billion dollar company that they'd be accountable. They're not. It's on your risk. Secondly, fraud is going through the roof. Last year, Canadians reported 
$528 million in fraud losses. Now that the RCMP tell me is maybe one in 10 or one in $15 of the actual losses, meaning, you know, the real losses in Canada are closer to five, 10, or even $15 billion to fraud. It's a big business and they're waiting to catch people when we're most vulnerable, which is when we're excited. How do you, what is the right way then, David, to exchange product for money? Uh, is it, should you only do this in person? Obviously, this, this was a deposit situation. Is that common? Should you ever leave a deposit? I, I would be extremely skeptical doing transactions with people you do not know, who your friends don't know. So the moment you're reaching out to complete and other strangers, um, things can be risky. And it's not even just buying things. It can also be selling things. Uh, many folks are now finding they're getting scammed, trying to put their items up for sale with bad checks or bad transactions. It's it's a very risky uh, proposition. This is not like the old newspaper want ads. Why? Right. Because that was read by your community of interest. Now, scammers from around the world or across the province in this case can, can try and take advantage and try and get away with these crimes. And they're swamping our police. So they think there's safety in the number of these crimes that happen and how many of their fellow criminals don't get prosecuted. Should this sort of thing only be done in person? All right, here's the advertising. You've made the contact. You've decided on a deal. Here's where we're going. And they always say, you know, make sure you do that in a well-lit area, in an open area, what have you. But, you know, where does it get to the point where, okay, I've got this, you've got that, here we go. Yeah, I, I would definitely recommend, number one, don't never do one of these transactions on your own. Uh, make sure you have someone there you know and trust with you in a public place that's well lit, preferably daylight. Um, heck, some police departments actually have designated parking spaces so that yeah. you can actually go and do it at the police station um, for that added layer of protection. But even with all that being said, in-person can present its own set of risks, um, particularly for vulnerable individuals, seniors, women, others. So, you know, just be careful out there. The The amount of people that want to cause harm financially or physically is frightening. And when times are tough, well, I guess all the time, but when times are tough, especially people do desperate things, this stuff really increases, doesn't it? It does. In fact, the RCMP are projecting for this year to be even higher than last year's losses. We're waiting for the numbers for 2023 to be tallied, but we're not expecting fraud to decrease. Fraud makes half of all cybercrime in Canada, and it continues to be extremely lucrative. So be careful out there. It's, you know, Facebook Marketplace is great for that Facebook buy nothing, sell nothing kind of thing. People you know in your community. Um, but if you're talking big ticket items, be very careful and and don't do cars on Facebook. It's a bad idea. David Shipley with us, cybersecurity expert, CEO, Boceron Security. Stay safe while shopping on places like Facebook Marketplace. David, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Take care. Stay safe. Before Christmas, we talked with Anthony Farnell, chief meteorologist for Global News. It was going to, is it going to be a white Christmas? No. And now is it going to be a white new year? as we head into it. And there is a storm coming in, uh, but I think it's going to be a mixed bag of everything. Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist, Global News here now. Anthony, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. 
Yeah, doing well. And uh, it is certainly getting busy across the country. We do a lot of different uh, markets and uh, every one of them has some sort of storm and cold in the forecast. So it's about time, but uh, it is heating up or or getting more active, not heating up. (laughs) And now everybody's calling Anthony. But as I said, it's kind of different depending on where you are, isn't it? Uh, yeah, definitely. Tomorrow, uh, case in point, right around uh, 11 a.m., it'll be snowing heavily in some areas, already switched to rain in others, and then the wind's picking up. So this is a major storm. But if you've been outside today, everything that fell over the weekend is already melting. So uh, it's just too mild. So we're not going to see a prolonged period of snow, at least not yet. But the setup is there as we move ahead in time. Uh, as you mentioned, a mixed bag, depending upon where you are. But again, is the ground really cold enough yet for anything to stay? Have we had that big frost where what we do get does stay? Uh, well, on grassy surfaces, it might accumulate up to three or four centimeters. Uh, it'll be quick. It'll uh, surprise some people as they look out uh, the car window or just uh, from your home, especially mid-morning. And then already, I think by noon, we're transitioning to rain. It becomes heavy at times. And that's actually good that there isn't ice on the rivers and streams because there is 20 to 40 millimeters of rain coming on top of the snow and and the somewhat frozen ground so uh it's good that there's no ice jam potential but rivers will be running high it looks like uh for the remainder of the week so starts as snow and then switches over to rain what about that ugly freezing rain in between any ideas what that may look like as we transition yeah, not with this storm. Uh, because there's no cold air at the surface or aloft, the setup isn't there for freezing rain. So it'll be those thick flakes that melt on contact, and then all of a sudden you'll see it tw- uh, switch over to just plain rain. And that continues heavy at times through the afternoon. Uh, give yourself some time because hydroplaning and slushy conditions are expected all day. Uh, and then the winds uh, pick up as we go late Tomorrow into early Wednesday, we could see some gusts in the 60 to 70 kilometer per hour range as well. And so about what time will it change from snow to rain? I'm thinking before noon. So it, it is always tough to, to get the exact timing, yeah. but uh, this is should be a pretty quick transition. So maybe noon, 1 p.m. at the latest, uh, and it's going to go from Niagara. Uh, Hamilton Mountain will be one of the later areas. Halton Hills may linger as snow till 2 or 3 in the afternoon. Uh, so it's near Lake Ontario. Those are the first places to switch over. And then it's some of the higher terrain areas up to the north that we'll see five to 10 centimeters of snow. But here too, it all melts as the system is coming from the Gulf of Mexico and it has a lot of moisture, but a lot of mild air with it as well. And we understand, Anthony, there's another system coming in on Friday to be concerned about. Yeah, it's uh, incredible. If you know anything about barometric pressure, uh, anything in the 970s, 970 millibar range is a formidable storm in the Great Lakes. That's uh, similar to what sunk the Edmund Fitzgerald, those type powerful systems Mm. uh, that a measure of their strength is the barometric pressure. So 970s are pretty low, uh, and we're going to see two of them in the span of five days. Next time around, though, Friday into Saturday, there is more cold air ahead of the system. So I think we're going to see a lot more snow with that one. We may still switch to rain, but Friday night, into Saturday should be a wild ride and uh, we're 
already using the B word, blizzard conditions in some areas mm. where it stays snow. So, uh, yeah, that may not be a good time to travel either. And, and as this gets up into cottage country and ski country, good news for them. Obviously, this will be snow for them, will it? Yeah, so uh, still much of ski country switching over to rain, unfortunately. So it's not a great situation on Tuesday. But then some colder air moves in. We get lake effect. A uh, clipper arrives on, on Thursday. And then Friday night into Saturday. That's the big storm where I do think some areas will see 20 to 30 or more centimeters. And then the real cold, the stuff that uh, the prairies are going to be dealing with this week, that moves over the Great Lakes to end the weekend and next week. And because there's no ice on the Great Lakes, I think lake effect is going to be a, a big news item heading through next week. It's here. Uh, Anthony Farnell with us, Chief Meteorologist, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. As always, Anthony, thanks for the time. Be well. All right. Same to you. We all know Ontario and its connection to the auto industry over the last several decades, and it looks like that is going to continue. Honda considering opening an EV plant in Ontario, as well as vehicles and batteries. Let's bring in David Booth, senior writer, PostMedia, Driving.ca, and is with us now. David, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Very well. I recovered from the holidays, indeed. And happy new year to you. It's, it's great to have you on for another year. Uh, give us, uh, some, some context to all of this. What do we know? What do we know as far as details? Almost nothing, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, mm. Nikkei Asia, uh, a reporting agency in the Far East reported that, uh, Honda was going to, uh, look at a $14 billion U.S., um, investment in a, uh, battery producing plant in Canada, uh, amongst other places. CBC is claiming that there has been talks uh, between Honda Global and Minister Champagne um, here in Canada, uh, in Japan. Um, not surprising. He went over on a trip over there and met with all the automakers. Supposedly, they Honda Global may come here and next week, I believe, and talk more. Um, that's all the details we're sure of. And is this uh, a specifically a battery plant, or that's where they're starting? Yeah, um, you know, there's so many denominations to this. I mean, you can build a plant that has builds the EV cells. That's right. like the individual little batteries that you put into your um, into your. Uh, cell phone or your channel changer. Then you can build modules, which is a whole bunch of those uh, together. And then you can build the modules and put them in, in a casing with a temperature control system. And that's the entire battery. Okay. That gets plugged into the car. From what I'm to understand where the Stellantis and the Volkswagen um, uh, plants are building, I think modules uh, rumors. Again, we, can't verify this is that this one will build entire batteries uh what about raw materials do we know any of that i guess not well i mean I, 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 that one should be lock solid in that to get to the point where you uh can uh qualify for the uh incentives that the americans are asking uh, are delivering the 7500 us dollars that you can get if you buy an electric vehicle in the states the materials must be 
in the uh, uh, access to North America. So I, I'm sure that right now we're a bit behind. And even though we have the raw materials, it takes time for the mines in Canada, especially with our bureaucracy, to get on board. But absolutely, they want to uh, source all of the minerals here as much as they can. And they want some of our clean, green electricity as well. Uh, Honda had a deal or was working on a deal with General Motors. What happened there? Does that affect all, does that affect all of this, as you've written? Um, they were supposed to get together uh, for a $5 billion U.S. dollar plant and build. Uh, Honda was going to use, I think, the Ultium batteries that are uh, part and parcel of the um, GM um, a boost into electric vehicles. Unfortunately, a, a lot of things went bad. It's very possible that one of them was that General Motors hasn't been doing a very good job with its electric cars. And, um, and you know, both of them had promised that the output of that would be a really, really cheap uh, EV. That the, finally the uh, $30,000 US dollar um um, uh, electric vehicle that would offer price parity to gasoline. That's on the shelf. And that's probably why they broke the contract. And then they uh, they 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 have now decided to go their own way. I, I I think they this is off the record, not off the record, but I have no information on this. But I suspect they just decided that um, General Motors couldn't supply what they needed mm -hmm. to continue as Honda, one of the premier and most reliable. Um, uh, suppliers of auto, auto, uh, automotive product in North America, and um, they just needed dedicated service and uh, product. Uh, I mean, they're going to build this almost assuredly at, at Alliston, and they build a lot of cars there. Um, they built CRVs and Civics there. Um, that those are fairly cheap cars that would fill the bill as cheap uh, electric vehicles. We have no indication that either will be electric by 2028 when this comes on board, but it certainly fits in with um, Honda's timeline, which is that they want 40% of all their vehicles in North America to be electric by 2030 and 100%, I think, by 2035. Uh, Honda strictly EV or is it a, a hybrid EV? And uh, these batteries, from what I understand, and with the monies that they're banding about, it couldn't. It's very unlikely that it's a, a hybrid battery plant. I suspect that if it's if okay, if it's building cells and modules, they could use those in hybrids, or they could use them in um, mm. in electrics uh, or even plug-in hybrids. If they're building entire batteries, it's almost assuredly a full battery power. David Booth with us, senior writer, postmediadriving.ca, and the rumors floating around that Honda's considering opening an EV battery plant in Ontario. David, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, and uh, I hope you've recovered from uh, the, the Happy New Year's as well. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Obviously, uh, tent encampments, housing, an issue uh, heading into 2024 as it was coming out of 2023. We were talking to the fire chief uh, just last week, talking about a fire at Woodland Park, and another one has happened since then. Um, and I remember 
remember talking to those in charge uh, in the summer, and we were working on protocols and guidelines. And it's, well, what about winter? <laughs> Like it just it, it it doesn't seem that there's a goal in place here. Uh, let's bring in Larry Deany, former mayor of city of Hamilton, and with us now. And we should also point out that uh, we have been trying to get a mayor a hold of uh, Mayor Andrea Horbath, and she will join us uh, later on in the month. Larry is here now. Larry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am doing very well. Happy New Year to you and your listeners, Miss Scott. And Happy New Year to you, Larry. We always enjoy your time, and we thank you so much for uh, taking yours to join us. You know, you've been a mayor. What do you do if you've got a problem like this? It seems that we were working through the summer and weren't even really thinking about winter. What do you do? Uh, are there options? Oh, my gosh. It's it's such a complicated story, isn't it? And things mm, seem to yeah. be going from bad to worse when, you know, you have um, half a million dollars worth of fire. Um, I assume because people are trying to warm themselves and they light where they uh, fires where they shouldn't be, and um, and it creates the problem that uh, was created. Uh, luckily, I don't think anybody was injured, but they very well could have been. Um, and of course, we've had other problems as well. We've had violence in these encampments. Uh, we've had murders. In fact, not too far from where that fire started. So it is it is a huge problem. Um, and, uh, you know, when I was in the chair, which is a long, long time ago now, um, we didn't have these issues. Uh, at least they weren't as demonstrable as they seem to be now. We had people who were homeless and people on the street, but we were able to manage that. Things have gotten so complicated, not just in Hamilton, but right across, I suspect, uh, the province and the country, perhaps, that it's become unmanageable. Part of it, though, is that um, there has been a change from the last council that that wanted to control these things uh, to a greater degree to this council that seems to be allowing things to occur in in a a more permissive way, and uh, the supervision just isn't there. And so consequently, the lack of supervision, at least that's what it seems like, the lack of supervision and the unfettered use, um, even contrary to some of the, the liberal protocols that they put in place, uh, are creating these problems. And it'll be interesting to see what Andrea Horvath has to say, because obviously she's in the chair, she's got all the information at her fingertips, and she's being advised, and, and whether there are some solutions or not, which, which should be um, you know, solutions that try to help people but not solutions that allow misadventures to occur. Uh, hopefully, she's got an answer to that as well. But things are not good, and I know, you know, that there has been um, um, some um, some move to try to get these tiny homes, which are not the answer. We're looking at 25. If they're approved, they're controversial. They've been chased from pillar to post. Nobody seems to want them. They're now looking for, uh, as your own newscast pointed out different locations. I can't see, certainly in Ward 5, which is closer to where I live, um, I can't see, you know, people with open arms wanting these in their neighborhoods. So the same thing is going to happen all over again, where these people who are trying some experiments to help are going to be chased out of town, and, uh, and and the problem persists. So is the interim solution to try to just to supply as much temporary 
uh, shelter space as you can. So rather than uh, tent encampments, more shelter space. Is that even well, viable or is it just so overcrowded? Well, you know, there, there there's a number of ways of approaching this. One of them is, you know, I, I read online, and of course you, you can't go <clears throat> by what people are saying on social media um, and, and, you know, take it to the bank. But this was from a very responsible public figure in the city of Hamilton who pointed out that many of the people in the uh, encampment, which is a neighborhood he lives in, the uh, the Woodlands Park uh, encampment, are not ha- are not from Hamilton. They, they've migrated to Hamilton because they see Hamilton as a bit of an open city. So one of these uh, things should be um, to control who comes in and who's allowed to stay. And, and not that we want to be, uh, you know, um, a, a border police like they're having in the States, but by the same token, every municipality needs to do its fair share. And when I was uh, in the mayor's chair, we used to, we, we heard, and it came to me that, that you know, uh, social services in Toronto was giving tickets to people who couldn't afford to stay in Toronto and sending them to Hamilton. Bus tickets, I mean, mm. and sending them to Hamilton. And I remember calling the, the, the mayor of the day, David Miller, uh, who said, uh, no, we wouldn't do that, but let me check. And he did check. And and it seemed as if uh, there was a hiatus in the numbers that we were seeing coming from the Toronto way. So I always suspected that that, that, that there was some uh, some mm-hmm. uh, reason for, for the concerns that we were uh, facing. So one of them is that, you know, you've got big city mayors, you've got local mayors, uh, you've got different associations. Everybody should should put their shoulder to the wheel and, and find some local solutions rather than sending everybody to Hamilton Way. So that's one thing that needs to be done. The other is enforcement. I mean, even the councillor uh, in Ward 3, who is perhaps one of the more lenient councillors around these issues, she says, at least she was quoted in the paper, as saying that she alerted the fire department to potential dangers around those fires. So in, in enforcement needs to happen as well to prevent people from, you know, striking fires where they shouldn't and creating the problems. Uh, and then, of course, our own shelter spaces. There are, there are solutions um, that, uh, you know, there was something in the paper just today uh, where um, we have room but the rooms are not being used for various reasons, uh, but quite yeah. a few rooms could accommodate some of these folks in shelters, and we're not doing it. Hamilton Housing is finding it difficult to find the money to fix the rooms and make them more habitable and so on. So council really needs to look at all of those solutions. And then, of course, the federal and provincial government, especially the provincial government, needs to step up to the plate and, and, and assist municipalities uh, where these things are happening. So it should be a whole, all hands on deck uh, solution, in my estimation. Larry Deani with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton, talking about the issues around tent encampments and uh, houselessness, homelessness, and how we move forward. Larry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great new year. And we hope to chat you again through, uh, chat with you again throughout the course of the year. And we thank you for all you've done for us over the time. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. 
in a uh, post-pandemic world, uh, over the last couple of years, we've had issues with uh, cold medication and stuff and, and shortages of certain, especially kids' medications, uh, during uh, particularly uh, strong flu and cold seasons over the, uh, uh, the past year or two. And now we're hearing of uh, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration agreeing to allow uh, states like Florida to import bulk pharmaceuticals, including medications for asthma, diabetes, HIV, from Canadian wholesalers as a way to avoid the high cost of drugs in that country. To talk more about all of this, Justin Bates with us, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacist Association and here now. Justin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well, and thanks for having me on. Justin, we remember that over the past couple of years, there's been issues with supply and such uh, for various reasons. How secure is our supply now? How confident are you that, that everybody's getting what they need? Well, notwithstanding some of the news coming out of uh, the States, which is a concerning trend that we've seen kind of rear its head every few years with states looking to deal with their own pricing issues by importing Canadian drugs uh, intended for our patients into the U.S., um, our supply has been relatively stable. We still have a number of drug shortages that we have to manage, and pharmacists spend about about approximately 30% of their time managing shortages. So it's a significant amount of time. And uh, we see it with Ozempic and some of the other medications. Um, on the good news is the OTC side, so over-the-counter pain, fever relief medication like Tylenol and Advil, uh, as well as cold and uh, cold and, and flu medications is quite stable this year. There's much more supply. So there's an ebb and flow to it, but our, our supply chain is quite vulnerable. And uh, we do need to look at more domestic capacity, and we certainly have to ward off threats from um, states like Florida. So why most people would think that things are cheaper in Florida, not more expensive. So how is it cheaper for Americans to buy drugs from Canada? How is that the case? Yeah, it is an interesting question because you're absolutely right. Your your first thought would be that, that surprises me because you would expect the opposite. But what happens in Canada is that we have a highly... Uh, regulatory regime that um, regulates the price, negotiates the price, and sets the price by government for both uh, public plans, um, government reimbursed plans, as well as private health uh, plans from employers. So we have for brands an agency of the government called the Patent and uh, Medicines Pricing Review Board, PMPRB, that manages brand name drugs. And there's a consortium of provinces who are the public plans who belong to the Pan-Canadian Pricing Alliance, and they negotiate with the pharmaceutical companies and set the price accordingly. On the uh, south of the border, uh, it's the opposite, actually. It's more of a true market economy in, in the sense that pharmaceutical companies and the same companies uh, set their own price based on supply and demand. So in some cases, you'll see you know, certain generic medications will be cheaper. Most of the brands are, are more expensive. And because it's the same manufacturers, they look at the marketplace like Canada with a tenth of the population, and they plan out their supply to the pharmacy wholesalers based on historical trends. So there's not enough built-in capacity in the supply chain to be able to mm. divert product to a state that is about half the population of Canada, about 20 million, because in Florida, they're looking for an easy off-ramp to manage their high drug prices, uh, and they think this is a mechanism that'll work. So is it largely generic drugs that they're buying? 
this will be largely brand names. We haven't got a specific list yet, so there's still right. quite a bit of work that has to be done by the uh, government in Florida to put this whole proposal together. Um, so we know that, as you mentioned on the outset, they want to focus on some of the really high-cost drugs like insulin, diabetic medications, the HIV, as well as some of the other chronic conditions. Um, so I don't think it's going to be a full list of medications, but more of a targeted list. But by the time they... If they were successful, and I should say that Canadian regulations under the Food and Drug Act uh, Part C do prohibit this. So there's not, uh, it's not legal for pharmacy wholesalers to sell product on mass and in bulk to uh, outside of the Canadian market um, when those products are uh, designated for the Canadian market. So it would need to circumvent or find a loophole, if you will, to be able to actually do this, which is why I think it's probably not practical and likely not to happen. But if they were to, they would still have to inspect the products. They would have to relabel them, uh, and that costs money. So I'm not sure mm. the savings is really there. Um, but I would want to make sure the Canadians understand this isn't going to happen overnight. If it happens at all, and there's no need to go and panic buy. Um, and I know Health Canada is monitoring the situation and aware of it. Uh, but at this point, uh, you feel it's highly unlikely that this will even see the light of day. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, at this point, based on the regulations that are now in place, and they've been in there for several years due to this problem occurring in the past, you may recall other states uh, making similar announcements. And uh, we've had individual bad actors uh, that have found ways with physicians in certain parts of the country writing scripts for Ozempic, as an example, out right. to uh, Vancouver and then shipping them down. I mean, those could happen and, and we would need to enforce and make sure that um, that doesn't happen. But on a bulk basis where pharmacy wholesalers are basically reselling the same product down to the U.S. from the same pharmaceutical company, I think we're, we have the safeguards in place. But, of course, we'll have to monitor it. Justin Bates with us, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacist Association, keeping the uh, drug supply in the province and the country uh, safe and stable. Justin, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thank you. All right. Canada is a free country and everybody knows they got the right to protest. But at what point do those protests cross the line? We have seen this repeatedly with pro-Palestinian protests uh, in, across the country in various cities, uh, whether it's uh, harassing shoppers in shopping malls, uh, pulling down Christmas displays, threatening policemen to put them six feet under. Uh, and most recently, a situation at Toronto's Nathan Phillips Square, where the skating rink there and the mayor uh, holding their New Year's levy and uh, that completely overrun and the mayor uh, being the uh uh, the former NDP person that she is was trying to be very, um, uh, very calming and, and, and trying to reason with protesters and have discussion. That was nowhere to be found. And long story short, um, uh, you know, <laughs> event canceled. And here we go again, whether it's people protesting in Jewish neighborhoods, cutting off, uh, uh, on and off ramps to highways that access neighborhoods like this. At, at what point does the demonstration and just become uh, sheer harassment. Let's bring in Sean Sparling, retired deputy chief, Sault Ste. Marie Police, currently the president of Investigative Solutions Network, and here now. Sean, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Sean, your thoughts of what we've been seeing here? I mean, you know, many people may not understand that it is the police job to keep the peace, not to, you know, certainly uh, instigate a riot or create conflict in any way. But where's the line here? What are your thoughts? 
Well, you hit it right on the head. The uh, the job of the police in most of these instances is simply to keep the peace, not to have an opinion and not to interject in what somebody's political agenda is, but actually just to keep the peace and make sure nobody gets hurt there today. And, but there is limits. Like at the end of the day, they are harassing people. Uh, I saw the uh, on the news the the protests involved in the mayor, and they're using some really inflammatory rhetoric. Like they're com- uh, they're trying to compare uh, Hamas to Nelson Mandela, and also say that at the same time that the IRA are freedom fighters and comparing it to um, Hamas. So lots of inflammatory things going on, and I imagine the police are uh, in the background certainly trying to investigate the main agitators to see if there's something that can be done with them. Uh, at the end of the day, when you get uh, such a frequency of these sorts of events, is there any communication between chiefs, between uh, police services? Hey, this is obviously a situation that's becoming more intense. Uh, do we have a game plan? Do we do we just do we just close roads and cancel events at willy nilly, or is there repercussion for this? Well, I think you're. Uh in the background, the police are probably very involved with their different intelligence services, and they're probably collaborating quite well amongst themselves, especially within the GTA and uh, those other uh, uh, bigger services. Um, now, as far as how long will this, they kind of let this go on for, providing there's not any overt uh, um, violence and whatnot, I suspect it's going to go on for a while yet before you see the police actually intervene. The fact that somebody has to shut down the, uh, the mayor's uh, levy skating event is uh, probably inconsequential to actually maintaining safety for people. Uh, what happens when, and I mean, we all saw the video of, of a protester threatening, verbally threatening a police officer. Is that not a crime? Well, absolutely it is. And like the, uh, to be quite honest, like the, some of the, uh, the, pro- the way they're, uh, they're conducting the protests and shutting down highways and whatnot in themselves is, uh, is a crime. It's, uh, it's public mischief. Uh, but again, uh, you have to pick and choose your battles and are you going to inflame the situation and also cause essentially a riot or uh, some really overt violence. So the police really have to be uh, cognizant of that and really be uh, picky on what they're going to actually enforce. Uh, it, all, it kind of reminds me of a freedom convoy. Uh, are police waiting for some sort of leadership, somebody to say, hey, this isn't acceptable anymore. And as soon as, you know, you can protest all you want, but as soon as you try to stifle events or close things down, that's, sorry, we're, you're going to be arrested. Yeah, the uh, as far as the leadership, I'm certainly they're the, they're looking towards their upper leadership as to how to uh, manage us in the, in the big picture. But again, like uh, like uh, as a nation, we don't have a, a good track record of supporting the police when they do take over action in these type of protests and shut them down, yeah. because there's yeah. always another side to it, right? That uh, doesn't see it the same way. So the uh, again, you're going to see them uh, defer to uh, public safety and just keeping the peace for as long as they can, and hopefully that this peters out. But I don't think you're going to see them actually take a real strong enforcement action right now. Uh, what about police bringing protesters coffee and donuts? Well, that was just an absolute terrible optics for sure. Um, but that's just back to the uh, trying to maintain some peace there. And I see a lot of people try to make some political hay out of it. Uh, everything from the opposing groups to the politicians. And the chief had to come out and apologize for somebody uh, for his officers uh, delivering coffee. That's just about the politics and the optics. It has nothing to do with the operational side. To be quite honest, other than uh, looking bad on camera, that officer really didn't do anything wrong at all.
Is this about keeping the lid on this, Sean, or is it about finding a solution? Uh, is it about just waiting till it peters out? Because, again, we saw that with the the convoy and it didn't happen. Yeah, well, in this scenario, this is not a police matter, right? Like, this, uh, all they're trying to do is keep the peace and keep people safe. This yeah. is politics happening overseas and within our communities and all these different things. The police are not going to solve this. All yeah. they can do is hope that the, uh, the protests uh, end peacefully. Or they, they'll take action where they have to. But this is not a police matter to solve. This is a political issue uh, that needs to be solved. What do you say to those that say, hey, the police aren't doing their job, and there's certainly been lots of comment about that, that they should be stopping this, that they should not be putting up with this? They're doing what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to keep people safe and uh, keep them from getting hurt, and that's what they've been doing. As far as uh, there's always another side to the uh, to the protest. Uh, like again, I do think that the uh, this Palestinian cause that's being protested right now is uh, going a bit over the top, and the rhetoric is uh, very charged. Uh, but that's not going to change what the fundamental function of the police are. And uh, for people to be critical of them, you might want to be more critical of the political uh, structure that's allowing this to happen right now. Sean Sparling, retired Deputy Chief, Sault Ste. Marie Police, currently the President of Investigative Solutions Network. Well said, Sean. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Ticker. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Follow up from the pre, uh, Prime Minister's latest vacation. Now, I don't think anybody complains that the man and his family go on a vacation. Everybody deserves a vacation. It's a high-stress job. Of course, he should be. But I think where the complication lies is when the Prime Minister says, or the Prime Minister's office says, oh, he's paying for it all. And then we find out, no, no, they're clarifying. I'm not sure it's a clarification or if it's just a change of fact that, no, he's not paying for it because it's free from a family business friend uh, from the past. So uh, gratis staying on the house, per se. Is that a conflict of interest? Do Canadians care? Tim Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, and here now. Tim, hope you're doing well. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Scott. And listen, when I come stay on your sofa, I'm going to bring beer and it'll be almost as good as Collective Arts in Hamilton. How's that? Oh, I cannot wait. And you just give me a couple hours notice and I will have things set up for you. Perfect. You will just absolutely love it. All right. Is this unethical? Is it a conflict of interest? Because, you know, there's a couple of different angles here. They said one thing, it's another. But again, if you take something from somebody, eventually isn't the favor repaid? Is it a conflict? Well, the ethics commissioner says it isn't. I think it's a big perceptual conflict, and that's probably the biggest problem here. Is it an actual conflict? Is there a benefit that I believe it's the Green family um, are deriving because they are friends of the Trudeaus and they've been family friends dating back to uh, the former prime minister, Mr. Pierre Trudeau? Uh, I, I don't even think that is what's bothering people. I think what's bothering people is you're taking a what has effectively been described as a $90,000 gift to go to a luxury villa at a time when a lot of people in this country are struggling to pay their mortgage, struggling to put groceries on the table, and have just gone through the holiday period where maybe they couldn't uh, treat their family and friends the way they wanted because their dollars are tight. I think that's a bigger problem for the prime minister. Why was one of these trips or the last one okay, this one not, vice versa, Aga Khan, all of that? What what makes one okay, the other not? Yeah, it's a really good question. The difference that has been reported thus far 
is that the Aga Khan, uh, at the time of that visit, which I think is 2016, 2017, somewhere in that period, uh, he, his organization was lobbying the federal government. There is no, to the best of my knowledge and the reporting that I have seen thus far, um, the Green family and whatever entities that they own aren't, uh, have, it hasn't been reported that they are lobbying the federal government. Uh, that being said, as you say, there's the optics of all of this. He's a rich man. Why, why even go there? Why would you, why would you say, you know what? I you appreciate what? it, but this I, one's on me. I, I think, I think it's a bit, of, uh, I think it's habitual, right? I think he's at a place where, look, he's, he's a person of privilege. God bless him for that. He's grown up living this way. He's taken vacations like this before. Perhaps he has calculated Scott that, yeah, you know, I'm damned if I do, I'm damned if I don't, so I'm damn well going to do it anyway, uh, and I'll take the heat for it. He's not stupid. I mean, he has to know. He even acknowledged as much himself in year-end interviews that uh, Pierre Polyev was doing a much better job than he was communicating to Canadians about, you know, the economic anxiety they had. I, I think at this point, he probably doesn't care less whether he gets that criticism you know, if I were being conspiratorial, I said this elsewhere today, but maybe it's a sign that, you know, his time in office is coming to an end because he uh, he isn't as sensitive about the criticism that he had to know was going to come. Exactly. Like whether right or wrong, it's just the perception of that. On the note that you just brought up, um, will the prime minister put his own dreams aside and do what's right for the party. It, it looks pretty damaging at this point for the party if he continues driving the bus. If he stops driving the bus, at least there's a chance for this party under new directions. Does he care about that? I think he does, um, but I don't think he's mentally there yet, or if he is, I mean, it was a great story, and I think it was Susan Delacourt in the Toronto Star wrote a bit about you know how Brian Mulroney in 1989 knew his time was up, but it took him three years to to set the stage as he saw it, or you know, and that could be all historical revisionism to step away. I think you know in his heart of hearts, Justin Trudeau probably knows what he's going to do, but he's not going to tell anybody before he does it. And there probably is a part of him that is saying, you know, I can beat this Polyev guy. I know what he was like in the house. I relish this. Are you still still there, Tim? Oh, sorry. Yeah, Yeah, you just cut out a bit. Yep, you just cut out a bit. Keep going. Sorry. I I said his desire to stay might be outweighing any rat. His desire to fight Polyev might be outweighing any rational uh, thought that uh, others are offering about his chances of winning. Will this get better for him? Does he believe this will get better for him? Or is he just, you know, and why not run the clock out, even though you're losing 100 to nothing, because, I don't know, maybe the other team will start scoring on their own net? Um, What what are your thoughts? Well, even the American Dream Team lost in basketball, having watched those documentaries all all, uh, Christmas with my son. Uh, But uh, I I think, I think, I think a couple of things, Scott. I think he believes that, um, you know, the economy is going to improve uh, over the next six to 12 months, and that will help him. 
I think he believes some of the programs that he's bringing in, whether they be dental care, potentially pharma care, will win him some support. And he believes that Polyev will flame out. So, you know, none of those things is impossible, but that's a lot of hoping. Uh, as we move forward with this and, uh, problems continue to mount around the war, uh, around the world, including wars, conflict that is going on. We're starting to see this on the streets of Canada with pro-Palestinian protesters and such. Uh, the mayor of Toronto's, uh, New Year's, uh, day, uh, or a New Year's levy was broken up by protesters, uh, police threatened and such. Does he have to do a better job of bringing us together instead of trying to, uh, I guess recruit everybody as a voting base? Yeah, I think he does, and, and every politician does. I think this is one of those come-together moments that, you know, you can't pick wedge issues here. You have to think about your community, the diversity of the community and views, and also call out right and wrongs. Like, you know, particularly as it relates to Israel and what's going on there and a lot of the pro-Palestinian rallies that are masquerading as, in some quarters, as pro-Hamas rallies. you got to call that stuff out and forcefully. Do you think we'll see a different uh, plan of attack this year? Brand new year. He's got a tan. What are we going to see different when this all gets back to the House or back to the House of Commons? Well, I, I think the budget will be the first indication of that sometime in the next couple of months. If there's a new hand, a new card to play. Um, Pharmacare, actually, before that, because remember now they have a an agreement, the NDP and the Liberals, to try and have something by the beginning of March. So. If the, if the NDP walk away, if that falls apart, that may change the strategic plan. So we'll see what he does with his dance partner, and we'll see what he does with the budget, which is where he can have the most potential impact, and those things will be in the next three months. Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, and the Prime Minister heading into a new year. Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. See you on your sofa soon, Scott. Thanks, buddy. Bye. (laughs) I can't wait. I'll get the Doritos. Joining us now, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, hope you're doing well. I am well. How are you? So far, so good. I've been keeping, I've been meaning to ask you for like the last week or so, and we always get, uh, sidetracked here or there for whatever reason. Uh, and, and, and I'm almost about to get sidetracked now with the Bills Miami game from yesterday, but that's another story. Uh, your thoughts on the first week of the professional women's hockey league mm. and what you have noticed. Um, I, I must admit we watched a couple of games. I've been pretty impressed with it all. A lot faster, a lot rougher than I thought it would be. And I thought things were just smoking along for them until I saw the opener in New York and hardly nobody there. And unlike the Canadian teams who've been selling the places out, uh, that was a little disappointing. What are your thoughts? Uh, yes, I'm going to answer that question first, though. If this was with Rick Zamprin, we would be not talking about anything other than those shameful Miami Dolphins that he <laughs> worships so hard. Uh, okay, to the women's hockey. Look, it is... This is, this to me, and and I've said this before, this to me is the challenge of this league. I don't think there are too many people who are not liking the idea that women can have a professional league and young girls can aspire to grow up and make a living playing hockey. I think that's a, a laudable goal. I think that's a good thing. I think there's, as I say, I don't know that there's too many people saying, oh man, keep the women off the ice. I mean, that's just not, we're, we're in 2024. That's not what people are saying. But there is still 
a gap that you have to cross between I like the idea of women's professional hockey and I am going to invest my time and emotional capital and money into supporting and watching and being part of this. And whether this league survives, thrives, whatever word you want to use is going to require people not to simply say, I like the idea, but I really, really like this league. And we'll see if that's the case. I mean, there have been leagues, men and women, that people have loved the idea of that have failed because they never are able to bridge that gap. There's others that you go, you know what? I didn't know that this thing was going to work. I mean, a perfect example, go back 30 years. I don't know that you would have said the UFC was going to work. It was a Good fringe, point. it was a fringe thing that you could only get on VHS tapes. And now it's, it's a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar industry. So we can't guess what's going to happen here. We can only say liking the concept isn't going to make this a success. There have to be people in the stands, as you say, there have to be people tuning in on TV. There have to be people talking about it when they go, you know, you're not just talking the Leafs. You're talking about the women's team as well. So the names become recognizable and the, the storylines and the rivalries and everything become something. If that happens, I don't think there's any reason why this thing should not take off. It's just, it's way too early to, to know whether that's going to happen. Uh, again, I, I think it's uh, obvious that you're going to get support in the cities, the Canadian cities that you do, but obviously it's those big cities that you have to uh, you have to generate an audience in as well. Were you surprised there weren't more people in the stands in New York? Is it one of those things where there's just so many things going on in New York? This just not is not top of mind. Is it something that perhaps uh, belongs in more of a larger or medium large city? Well, no, I, I don't think the problem is the city. Uh, Minnesota got a huge crowd the other day. Toronto sold out. Now Toronto's arena, the old Maple Leaf Gardens is, is a small barn. So they're sold out every game, but that's, you know, they should be, it's 2,500. They should be for sure sold out before every, all the games this year. Uh, Scott, it, th this to me is entirely about whether or not it gets emotional traction. It's got... Little to do, I mean, there's obviously there's money involved because there's sponsors and other, there's other things. And there's a lot of sponsors apparently that have jumped on board because again, they like the concept of this. Uh, there's one other thing that could play into this. And I think it's going to be, it could have a very, very large factor in this. And that is, you know, the NHL has said for years, Gary Bettman has said for years uh, to the women's leagues, get rid of multiple women's leagues combine into one and then come and talk to us and maybe we'll get involved like the NBA with the WNBA. And if that happens, that could be very interesting all of a sudden, because now I don't know if you remember this, but when the Toronto Raptors first started, they were not selling out. They were not a big ticket. I mean, yeah. don't forget they were playing at the Rogers Center, Skydome yeah. back then. You, you, there were a billion tickets for sale, unless the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan came to town, who cares? And because MLSE, Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment owned them. I don't know if you remember this, but for a while, if you wanted Leaf tickets, you had yeah. to buy yeah. Raptor tickets, yeah. season tickets. Yeah. Maybe if the NHL gets involved and don't forget all six of the women's teams that exist right now are all in cities where there are NHL teams. Mm -hmm. Maybe that becomes a thing. If you want an NHL season ticket, you have to buy X number of tickets or season tickets for this. And 
you just hope that the people who have those tickets, even if they're not interested, give them to someone else who comes to the games and becomes interested and you slowly build this momentum towards something that really sticks. All right. We're out of time. Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. Scott, have a great show. Thanks for the time. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.